I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Climate change represents a profound crisis for our nation. There is a consensus among the scientific community that it's hotter, and this trend is forecast to continue. Heat waves have become more frequent, intense, and of longer durations, including in the West, the Midwest, and New England. Now, heat affects everyone everywhere. As emergency managers, there's a realization that the problem of extreme heat is that it doesn't affect all of us the same way. It affects power grids, water resources, urban areas, vulnerable communities, and individuals, people who work outdoors, and those that are not accustomed to the extreme heat. On today's episode, with National Heat Awareness Day upon us, we talk with three experts from FEMA about the challenges of extreme heat and why FEMA has made climate resilience one of our top strategic goals. And hang around after the episode for a quick conversation with some really key FEMA staff that have been working hard to understand the problem of extreme heat and how FEMA can help state, local, tribal, and territorial emergency managers with decision-making. On today's episode, we're going to talk with uh, Victoria Salinas, the FEMA's Acting Deputy Administrator for Resilience. Victoria, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. And then we also have Nick Shufro, who is the Deputy Assistant Administrator for FEMA's Risk Management Directorate and has been serving um, as FEMA's representative to the Extreme Heat Interagency Working Group that's uh, within the National Climate Task Force. Nick, thanks for joining me. Good morning and delighted to be here to talk about this topic. And I think, um, you know, some of the work that you've done with the interagency is going to play a part in this discussion. So I'm excited to have that during this conversation. And then Paul Ferricelli, who is FEMA's new senior climate advisor for resilience. Paul, thanks also for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here. And Paul, I think you're probably the newest. And so, uh, I'm excited to hear about your perspective um, throughout the conversation um, and also uh, excited to hear about some of the ideas that you're going to bring to this new position. So thanks. Heat is uh, certainly becoming more frequent and in, in a lot of cases more severe, and it also creates a very challenging problem for emergency managers. So I think the first, the best way to start this conversation might be to really define what we're talking about when we uh, are speaking about extreme heat. And we hear a lot about that. So Victoria, what do we know about extreme heat? We know that extreme heat is a weather condition, right? It's what's happening when the temperatures get hotter, when we have more humid weather, when we've got longer periods of this type of weather in any given location. And here we're talking about temperatures above 90 degrees for more than several days. And I think what's important to to recognize is that a lot of us have felt that it's getting hotter, we've experienced it, and science is backing that up. The the most recent, the fourth national climate assessment, for instance, highlighted that we're getting more hot days, they're starting earlier, and that this is the new normal. I just wanna add in that um, extreme heat means different things in different parts of the country. So where people are accustomed to having extreme heat and humidity, such as in uh, Florida, um, and where people are have air conditioning and are accustomed to uh, limited work outside, um, that's very different than parts of the country, such as the Northwest, where 
Uh, they had a heat dome last year, extreme heat for a period of time, and there isn't as much air conditioning and there isn't as much awareness of the impacts of extreme heat. And that can also be seen in uh, locations. So for instance, in Manhattan, uh, in New York City, um, Central Park is, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about this later on, but there's a difference between Central Park temperature, where there are a lot of trees and greenery, versus the urban environment outside of Central Park. Okay, so given our new strategic plan, why is climate resilience and and really a focus on extreme heat important to FEMA? So here I think it's really important to know to to understand why extreme heat is so important for us as a nation, especially given our goals and our new strategic plan goals at FEMA that focus on equity, climate, and readiness. Extreme heat is a silent killer. It's a silent attacker that is disproportionately affecting certain communities. On average, and it kills more people each year than flooding. So on average, we've got 1,300 people dying from extreme heat every year. And this is actually an underestimation because there's a lot of heat-related illnesses that don't get calculated, don't get counted when people go to the hospital or or the emergency room. And so these are deaths that it result from, from heat-related stress, from the fact that power went out, the cascading impacts of extreme heat have more uh, more impact in people's lives than sometimes hurricanes and, and wildfires do. And, and while this is increasing, it's a problem that doesn't affect everyone equally. We just heard Nick give the example of, of Manhattan and, and the difference between Central Park and, uh, and other areas like 10 degrees. What goes into that is 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 the history of our nation. You've got housing policies that have led to people living in certain areas, underinvestment in neighborhoods that has led to asphalted communities with very little tree canopy. So we've got things like heat, like heat island effect, where you feel the heat much more intensely, not because the weather is actually different a five-minute walk away, but because there are no trees and there's no cover at your bus stop and because you're in a neighborhood that the public housing doesn't have air conditioning. And so it's our policies as a nation. It's the fact that the way we've designed our communities is one of the main drivers of the disproportionate impact of extreme heat on our most vulnerable residents, our seniors, our our low-income residents. And, And so that's one of the reasons that it's so important that we raise awareness about extreme heat so that it doesn't become a nuisance for some and a death sentence for others. Yes, just wanted to add that, I mean, it certainly affects people. And as Nick and Victoria has mentioned, it is affecting also infrastructure. I mean, we were talking about, you know, how extreme heat is, you know, can cause like power outages. But also we have seen how extreme heat conditions are affecting roads, bridges, transportation systems. And certainly the combination of power outages and and also disruptions in a transportation system that certainly can hinder the ability to provide essential services. So it is affecting both infrastructure, but also, and most importantly, people. You all have painted uh, an incredible picture of the problem set of uh, of heat. We've talked about uh, health impacts. We've talked about infrastructure impacts. We've talked about cascading impacts that maybe emergency managers need to think about as a uh, maybe a storm were to hit in the midst of an extreme heat event. Um, how do you go about, and maybe this is for Nick, as we talk about the interagency approach, how do you go about bringing all the partners together to uh, tackle such a complex and wide-ranging problem? That's a great question, Mark. And I think the real important tenet is to communicate 
And so when you're looking at three different audiences, uh, three different communities, you've got emergency managers, you've got climate scientists, and you've got public health officials. And the impact on public health is really important, but that's not something that climate scientists will talk about because they'll talk about the meteorology. And as, as Victoria said before, this is a climate impact in a weather condition. And so getting people to communicate and the way we tend to look at it from the interagency working group perspective is if you think about a Venn diagram and you think about public health in one circle, uh, emergency management in another, and managers, and then climate scientists, extreme heat is in that center. And if you don't have the same language, you're not talking about the same, um, give me a concrete example. Um, people were talking about extreme heat events. And for an emergency manager, an event is something that's planned. And so we tried to get them to change the nomenclature to talk about extreme heat incidents, because that way we have more of a role. And it was just a simple change in one word, but it helped us as emergency managers to engage in the conversation. So Nick kind of painted the picture about how the interagency is kind of working to address the problem. And Victoria, from your leadership position within FEMA, how are we and how do you see the agency itself coming together to address this problem um, internally? A number of ways. One is that our we have a huge portfolio of resilience building um, programs. And so what we'll experience is that most likely heat waves and heat and extreme heat won't be Stafford Act events. That doesn't mean it's not our responsibility to do something about it. And so through our Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities program, uh, through HMGP, through the whole range of programs that we actually have at FEMA, prioritizing this hazard type is something we need to be doing each step of the way. It also means that in disaster response operations, we need to be making sure we as an agency, and I talked about worker safety already, we as an agency are making sure our people in the field are okay because we are deploying them to places in the wake of disasters that are suffering from extreme heat. They're working in joint field offices, area field offices, they're, they're in communities, and they too can be susceptible in our field operations to the impacts of extreme heat. And so it's something from our own well-being of our workforce that we are prioritizing uh, in terms of uh, employee and staff safety. So those are just two areas as we think about our strategic plan, instilling equity, making sure we've got a ready workforce. Readiness uh, includes being prepared for extreme heat on the front lines. Part of this is that we have, as Victoria mentioned, we have a number of programs that are in place like the CERT program, like our ready.gov, uh, like the National Risk Index. And we don't necessarily need to have extreme heat branded programs. We can leverage the programs that we have. So for instance, the National uh, Risk Index or NRI looks at 18 different parameters, including extreme heat. And you can overlay that to socioeconomic uh, conditions and identify where there are vulnerable communities vulnerable to extreme heat. So we don't need a tool that will help us identify extreme heat and vulnerable communities. We already have one. And part of this is trying to coax our existing programs to understand that we have a role with respect to extreme heat and the tools and policies and programs that we have can be leveraged. 
and, and, and FEMA is putting the right pieces together. So communities, you know, can can look into these challenges and actually take action on those. That's why the recently released uh, state and local mitigation planning policy guides recognizes extreme heat as a hazard to be considered in hazard mitigation planning. Uh, so certainly by incorporating and integrating, you know, these weather condition event and analyze it as a hazard that can totally help the community, you know, to plan for it and therefore apply, you know, in one of these various uh, programs that FEMA has to actually take action and, and retrofit or build infrastructure that can withstand extreme heat events. I also you know, as, as Nick mentioned, you know, not necessarily we need something branded specifically for extreme heat, because it is important to highlight that when our investments, for example, in flood mitigation include sustainability approaches, such as tree planting, green infrastructure, and nature-based solutions, we are building extreme heat resilience. Augmenting green spaces in urban areas can totally help alleviate that change in temperature that's changing higher temperatures in certain parts of, of, of a city. So certainly we are looking for ways that our investments not only address one hazard only, we are looking for ways that our investment just address like multiple hazards. Mark, I think there's a couple other pieces of what can be done. And some of them are national, some of them are hyper-local. So at a national level, it's really interesting to observe that we have national safety standards around how cold a building can get. We don't yet have national safety standards about how hot your workplace can get or your school can get. And so what we're seeing is that, for example, in the labor sector, construction workers and people working our fields and helping make sure we actually have food in this country are exposed to extreme heat at much higher rates and, 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 and getting sick and dying at much higher rates because we don't have safety standards when it comes to how hot it gets. And that's at the national level. At the hyper-local level, uh, I'll give you Los Angeles, for, for instance. We, we haven't yet talked about how extreme heat affects the bottom line of a family's pocketbook. So utilities going up as you try and cool your home. Many utilities have programs for low-income residents, but they're not the outreach and trying to make sure the uptake of those assistance programs is, is happening in places most susceptible to heat island effect is a heavy lift. It's not impossible. The tools are there. The assistance, the financial assistance is there, but it's not yet adding up so that the people experiencing extreme heat most are also getting the financial support that they're eligible for. So that's the second thing. And the third gets to hyperlocal infrastructure. You've got cities like Los Angeles as well, stick with that example, investing in uh, cool pavement looking at where their hottest parts of the city are and, and and tackling it through local investments, mitigation projects that are tackling extreme heat. And so there's a number of ways that, that communities are taking action, including one of the things that FEMA historically has supported are uh, the community emergency response teams. Extreme heat events People survive more easily when neighbors check in on neighbors and know who the most vulnerable residents are on their block and are going in, making sure folks are okay. And things like CERT are an incredible response, community response investment and tactic that has multiple benefits across ranges of types of disasters. Paul, since you, your 
position is really a first of its kind at FEMA. As you are thinking about all of those programs that we have in the agency and how we might address this problem, what, how do you see your office and your position contributing to those efforts? This new position is part of the commitment of FEMA, augmenting their capacity in addressing climate change and also bringing the right technical assistance to FEMA programs so they can continue building and strengthening their efforts on addressing climate change. Uh, this position on the, on the climate office that we are standing up uh, is going to be a convener, it's going to be a facilitator, it's going to capitalize on the technical expertise from other federal agencies, and it's going to bring that expertise uh, to support FEMA programs. And also, it will provide advice across the agency when priorities uh, cross uh, many areas. Uh, certainly, uh, within the strategic plan of FEMA, uh, goal number two is speak about leading the whole of community into resilience, and that totally includes climate resilience, since this is certainly a crisis that we all are experiencing, not only in the United States, it's also around the world. So I just want to underscore something Paul said, because we hadn't talked about it yet. And these are new things that the agency is doing to really put climate first, of which extreme heat is a major part. So Paul referenced the, the climate office that we're standing up within resilience, but it's the FEMA climate office. And for those of you who read the annual planning guidance from our administrator closely, it's in there about starting a new climate office. It's part of really uh, driving home and acting on the Biden-Harris priorities around climate change. We're also investing uh, in, in building codes in a whole new way. And that's an important part of the solution here. May is both, uh, we're on the 27th of May, it's Extreme Heat Awareness Day. This is building code month as well. And so uh, on the building codes front, we're doing a lot to help make building codes um, more common across the country, of which only 36% of jurisdictions currently have the latest building codes. And they lead to better insulated homes. They lead to better quality homes, which mitigate a lot of the challenges we experience when it comes to extreme heat. So I just wanted to make sure we kept that in front of mind, too, as we think about the the actual things the agency is already doing and, and, and promoting to address all kinds of hazards, including this one. I just wanted to go back to a couple of points that we've made. Um, so our role traditionally has been to help mobilize whole of government responses, uh, including federal, state, local, territorial, tribal. Um, we don't have to have FEMA programs specifically. We can be in the passenger seat. We can be helping to navigate the way through. And so, for instance, Victoria spoke about the equity considerations. And um, when it gets down to it, if you've got somebody who's in a lower income uh, um, uh, situation and they have to choose between medicine and food and paying their utility bills, often utility bills don't come up. And um, Victoria mentioned that there are some programs in place um, which uh, traditionally have been called LIHEAP, the Low Income Heat Assistance Programs. And we're now looking at the equivalent of LIHEAP for air conditioning to pay utility bills. And that's something that FEMA doesn't necessarily have to pay for. HHS has just launched a new initiative around paying for utilities for air conditioning um, so that people don't have to choose between medicine and food and utilities. And part of our role often is to help raise awareness and mobilize other parts of the federal government, federal family to come to the table with solutions. 
I love that uh, conversation about mobilizing more than just FEMA, more than just the federal interagency, but also thinking beyond and, and how we support the um, state, local, tribal, and territorial partners that we have. And so let's talk a little bit about what communities that we live in that are our partners, what they can do to become more resilient as we face future uh, extreme heat events. Uh, so I, I'll, being the New Yorker that I am, uh, I will jump in. Um, so there is an interesting book um, that uh, many people in extreme heat have been, have read, and it's about the 1995 Chicago extreme heat event where approximately 735 people died in Chicago. And Victoria spoke about the social cohesion and neighbors checking in on neighbors, and that really prevented a lot of uh, fatalities because people were checking in on the elderly, the infirm, et cetera. And it's an interesting book because it talks about um, the vulnerabilities of certain populations and the fact that in this particular case, crime might have uh, kept people at home and not able to access cooling centers and things like that. So there is there are some things that can be done. Cooling centers can be set up. People can go and, and um, check in on neighbors. There are a whole variety of, of, of activities that can be done to try and mitigate the impacts of extreme heat. I'll add, recently I had the opportunity to uh, have breakfast with the uh, first extreme heat officer of our planet, who is in Miami-Dade. And she had some interesting, she's been tasked with looking at extreme heat in that whole region, right? And it's an area that's ex experiencing extreme heat, both because of um, just hotter days, but also the heat issues with storms, et cetera, et cetera. And to your question about what can state and local leaders do, one of the things that they're doing is developing a plan of action. Because when they understand their risk, they understand where the issues are more, where their bottlenecks are doing something, it enables everybody else to come around and support. And I'll give you an example. Affordable housing, public housing. It is something that currently cannot have a federal, the federal dollars that pay for, for public housing can't pay for air conditioning units because they're considered an appliance and therefore not permanent. And because it's public housing, they haven't been created in such a way that has central air conditioning. The point being that it's through conversations and lifting up the Achilles heels to tackling these issues that we can make decisions as a collective whole of government saying, that doesn't make sense. Maybe there should be a legislative fix. Maybe we can bring in our brick dollars or other HMA dollars to help be the layer that provides better cooling for public housing. We're not going to build public housing, but maybe we're the risk reduction layer that's helping make that housing safer for people so that whether it's extreme heat or it's the next storm, they're safer. And so, but that all comes from us being in conversation with and actively leaning in to support the plans and the projects that, that local leaders already know they want to do. In doing that, uh, are we talking about you know, maybe expanding the utilization of potentially mitigation grants um, to to accomplish those goals? So it's not expanding, it's using leveraging them better. So we oftentimes promote our applicants to just apply for a whole lot, of, like it's apply for your flood wall, we'll, we'll look at paying the, for the whole thing. What I'm describing is a different strategy. The cost of reducing the risk to extreme heat covers so many types of infrastructure that our dollars, our risk reduction dollars, our resilience dollars, 
if spread across other funding streams, other types of assets can reduce the risk where that funding, normal funding stream may not be able to cover this specific thing. So it's about the partnership. It's about us working better with the interagency, working better with HUD to, to, to support communities and meeting their needs so that a true resilience building project probably has many, many, many different types of funding streams because it's not trying to solve one hazard. It's not addressing one community need. True resilience building projects and initiatives cover a whole range of community needs and therefore a whole range of funding streams. Yeah, I, I believe we are all talking about how important is planning. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the state hazard mitigation plan, the local hazard mitigation plan really provides a very good framework to take action and plan to withstand uh, extreme heat weather conditions. And, and back to Victoria's point, it's all about how we leverage what, what already exists because it can really help the hazard mitigation investment address multiple hazards. You know, we don't have to look at things in, in, a, in a silo, in a tunnel vision. We have to look at investment holistically. And certainly, you know, the, the hazard mitigation planning efforts that uh, our state partners uh, conduct, you know, to access uh, FEMA, FEMA monies, uh, it is very important. I also think we, we, we you know, individuals, each one of us, you know, has a, has a role to play. So it's, it's, it's also about how we plan our day, how we plan our activities. Uh, I was thinking about it earlier and the same way that during winter, you know, we sort of like check the temperature just to see, you know, if we need like a very heavy coat. We also need to check the temperature during summertime. If, if you are planning to be a prolonged time outside, just plan ahead. I mean, maybe you have to keep yourself hydrated dress more uh, with lighter clothing. So also, you know, it is important for each one of us plan our day. So these extreme uh, extreme heat weather conditions uh, do not disrupt our day-to-day -day activities. So we do have um, uh, hazard mitigation plans at the state and local level, and we work with about 22,400 communities across the nation. And there has been a debate uh, within this community of extreme heat, whether or not there should be an extreme heat plan, action plan, many Los Angeles has one, many places in California have them, or whether this should be uh, part of our existing state mitigation plans um, that are already developed with these communities. And so far, the consensus around FEMA is that this should be part of our all hazard plan. And there might be a separate annex to talk about extreme heat tied into loss of utilities, et cetera. But let's try and mainstream it. And this gets back to talking about what is FEMA already doing? Do we need to have extreme heat action plans? Probably not. Do we need to include extreme heat as apparel that is included in the action plans? Yes. And this whole mainstreaming is something that FEMA has increasingly done um, in other areas also. So as an example, four or five years ago, we worked with Zillow. Um, so if you're going out and buying a house, for instance, for the first time, many people don't think to look at FEMA flood maps, but now Zillow and other similar types of uh, commercial products that are out there have information about, um, about flood risk. And so people don't have to be go to a specific map. And so the more we can mainstream some of this work and have our private sector partners take on some of this, 
the easier it is for us because that builds awareness and builds more resiliency. Victoria? I want to give one more example of how we think about our existing resources and programs in the context of all hazards and extreme heat in particular. So we have many, many of our programs are intended and, and had their genesis in flood risk reduction. So like the, the flood mitigation assistance program and, and we've got NFIP, we all know that. So if you've been around FEMA long, you know that we're also promoting nature-based solutions. So there's lots of ways to mitigate against flood risk. And oftentimes a community may say, may think about the hard infrastructure first, the, the, the flood wall or just elevating homes uh, to get out of flood risk. But it also it is also incumbent on us to be partnering effectively with communities. So if there are communities dealing with flood risk and they're also dealing with extreme heat, then it's incumbent on us to be supporting them and understanding that maybe it's the green infrastructure that is going to help them with multiple hazards because it's the green infrastructure, the tree canopy, the nature-based solutions that are natural remedies to reducing extreme heat risk. So I wanted to, to highlight that because just because an applicant says, this is the solution I want, we as an all-hazards agency always need to be thinking about every hazard, every risk, so that we're looking at resilience building holistically in the communities we're serving. So we've talked about planning. We've talked about some of the resources and preparedness that might be available and some of the things that communities need to think about. But when a community is faced with an extreme heat event, when they are uh, working through this emergency or disaster in their communities, in their states, and they are in, in uh, many cases, um, you know, limited in their own resources, they need to look or they can look towards um, Stafford Act declaration and working with FEMA. And so what are, in your mind, some of the limitations of the Stafford Act, but also the opportunities that the Stafford Act has in supporting our, our states and communities as they face these um, extreme heat events? So the Stafford Act, Section 102, that we're referencing here, gives an example in parentheses of hazard types. Written a couple decades ago, when we didn't fully understand what climate change was going to do to our planet. We should not feel limited by our statutes being silent on certain hazards that are getting more frequent and more extreme. As an all-hazards agency, it is our responsibility to continue to push the science-based approaches that are going to serve our nation. And so we can become, as our administrator frequently says, the FEMA our nation needs and deserves. And so this change that Nick mentioned from August of last year, not even a year ago, where people were saying, is this our mission? It's killing more people than flooding every year. Yes, it is our mission. It is a critical part of our mission if we're truly here to help people before, during, and after disasters. And I will add also, we, we have to build more science. I mean, extreme heat weather events, you know, it is very well back up, you know, by science, we know that exists. We we have talked about the impacts, we have talked about, you know, uh, how it affects people. But when it comes to quantifying the cost of damages at infrastructure systems, you know, we, we that certainly is, is a challenge when it comes to whether it is specifically because of an extreme heat weather condition, or if it is more of a cascading effect of a weather condition. So those are opportunities that we have available in front of us. 
And not only FEMA, but also the, the whole federal government is looking into innovation in order to, to bring that new science into the, the equation. And uh, one of the efforts that DHS you know, is doing is this cool community challenge where we are putting out a prize competition that is designed to find groundbreaking cooling solutions to counter extreme heat facing communities across the country. Uh, also, other federal agencies are putting out challenges that can bring this new knowledge, this new science that can better help communities withstand this type of weather events. So tomorrow is uh, National Heat Awareness Day, uh, May 27th. And so as we look towards um, identifying this hazard and thinking about what as emergency managers we can do, Victoria, what is the message to our communities, to our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners that we really want to convey as, as we work through this priority for the agency? One of the main messages for our partners, especially our local partners, is investing the time and resources to understand the impacts of extreme heat in your community. And that's both at the big picture level in terms of hot number of hotter days you're likely to experience as a whole, but I'm gonna bring it back to that New York City example. Where in your community are people likely to disproportionately be burdened by extreme heat? Who are they? Why are they going to be disproportionately burdened by extreme heat? Why is it something that, that is a nuisance for others, but it's something that's gonna make their daily life harder? Because in understanding who and why, that's where the best solutions are going to come to tackling this issue. And the resources that FEMA can bring, other agencies can bring, will be all invested in a way that the local government can really hone in on these equity issues around extreme heat and make sure their most vulnerable residents are the ones who are being supported to become more resilient to, to this hazard. So that's the main message that I would want to um, impart because it is where the solutioning all begins. And then of course there, as we, as we look to extreme heat day, think about what Nick just described. Eight months later at FEMA, something because of awareness building, it is now a conversation. We are having this conversation. It's not something that was happening last year, but now we are. And so raising awareness is also a key part of this. And so I encourage everyone to raise awareness on not just National Extreme Heat Day, but in every single conversation we're having about community resilience, having this be a key part of that conversation. Rebecca Moulton and Shen Yang work in very different areas of FEMA. Rebecca works in FEMA Region 4 in Atlanta with FEMA's National Hurricane Program. And Shang works in California as part of FEMA's recovery program. But both are on an interesting and important detail to help understand the problem of extreme heat as part of FEMA's role in the Interagency Extreme Heat Working Group. But in this additional segment, we'll talk to them about how extreme heat has and will play an evolving role in their day-to-day -day work at FEMA. Rebecca, uh, tell me a little bit about what you do day-to-day -day with FEMA. I am a meteorologist and I work in FEMA Region 4, which is the Southeast. 
crypto. One of my primary focuses has been, um, since I've been with FEMA, has been the hurricane program and supporting hurricane evacuations and part of the hurricane liaison team. But we've expanded that because in Region 4, we have almost every single weather hazard from hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, to um, snow and ice incidents. So we, we get a little bit of everything. Um, and I was really excited after being in the hurricane world for 15 years to start to tackle some of the climate change challenges. So I am currently on the detail to headquarters uh, as part of the extreme heat working group with the new FEMA climate office. Yeah, that experience uh, and and really what we want to talk about is some of the, the tools and the resources you provide to state, local, tribal, and territorial partners through that hurricane program liaison. But before we get to that, I just want to introduce Shen Yang. Um, Shen, tell me a little bit about what you do uh, from a day-to-day -day perspective. Yeah, so I come from the public assistance side. I work at the Consola Data Resource Center as a cost estimator and that we work on cost estimating public assistance grants for our SLTT partners for region Seven, nine, and 10. So Rebecca, you are a me meteorologist by background, but you're also, uh, you, you serve in the hurricane program uh, with FEMA. And part of that is uh, really helping uh, state, local, tribal, and territorial partners um, with their decision-making uh, as, we, as we face events. And so let's talk a little bit about how extreme heat is uh, maybe an evolving problem from emergency managers and how you can help them with their decision-making. Well, I think when I first came to this detail, I have one idea of, you know, knowing excessive heat events and, and seeing what we had been through in Region 4 in Florida after Hurricane Irma and the fatalities we saw there and after Hurricane Ida and some of the fatalities there and how that has changed how we think about hurricane response. So I had an idea about what heat would be in some of the problems. But as we got more into working with our partners, it just blew my mind how it affects almost every single thing that we do. So it's been very interesting as both the meteorologist, but from the decision-making standpoint. And what I do is kind of an art and a science of both. Um, knowing what their triggers are at the state level, knowing what their decision timelines are, knowing what questions they will be asking, I can then look at heat through that lens. So it's not so much about, you know, some of the things we think about heat are not that exciting or compelling, but we all want to know about what do we do for power outages? How do we help people, you know, that need to have temporary sheltering? You know, all of those things. And when you put that out there, then people start to understand, okay, heat, it's not just heat, it's also water, it's also some of these other things, and begin to translate that into information that in emergency management, we can plan for that. The idea of extreme heat for emergency managers is obviously a, uh, a problem set that needs to be worked through, but it's also personal for people who live through extreme heat. And so, Shang, you have a personal story that I'm hoping you could share with us, um, and maybe it highlights uh, some of your passion behind this detail. Yeah, definitely. I live in the Sacramento Valley where it's getting hotter a lot earlier and the days are lasting a lot longer. And then in our summer, we have consecutive triple digits, which is really affecting our water usage with the water restriction that we have in California. Uh, not only is it affecting me personally, it's also affecting my community as well. I'm a part of the Hmong community where a lot of the populations are elderly Hmong, Hmong people who are uh, oftentimes refugees from Laos and their livelihood relies on farming and 
you know, with this water restriction and the extreme heat affecting their crops. Um, and so a lot of the times they live in areas where they can't afford air conditioner and let alone being able to afford the electricity bill with using the air conditioner. Uh, and so um, last year, Last summer, I was actually with my mom, who has been volunteering for the gar gardening in in the Mon community, and I approached uh, one woman who who isn't really um, fluent in English, and she was just telling me her struggle with finding resources that could help her with fixing her air conditioner. And I've tried looking at other resources, and even me myself couldn't really find resources that could really help her. And so that really inspired me and wanted to join uh, this detail and learning more about extreme heat. So, uh, you know, as we kind of close out, and I appreciate you sharing that, um, what are maybe, maybe from an emergency management uh, perspective, you know, certainly as we, as we launch um, our initiative to try to bring um, state, local, tribal, and territorial emergency managers into FEMA through an exchange program, um, you know, what are some of the surprising aspects of this detail, which, you know, is maybe in addition to your normal duties uh, that you'll take back to your position at FEMA and, and maybe a lesson that emergency managers could fit potentially in future bring back from these experiences? Um, you know, maybe what's something that that you really are going to bring out of this detail? I think for me, just looking at the mitigation portion of it, right? Something as simple as, hey, let's look at the green space, right? Let's plant some trees to be able to mitigate the amount of heat that is reflected upon buildings. Being able to look at, you know, roofs and find, you know, codes and standards that will really um, help with the, the fixture of like the structure of buildings. And so things like that in terms of mitigation um, and the mitigation measure will be something that I would love to be able to dive into and bring that into my line of work. For me, I, I have very strong partnerships. We're very fortunate in Region 4. Um, we've very strong partners with the National Weather Service, the National Hurricane Center, um, a lot of other agencies. And so I kind of expected that coming in, but I didn't expect to see the very same themes that we see in our hurricane post-storm assessments and the social science for hurricanes. I did not expect to see those beginning to overlap into climate change. And learning that one of the biggest factors, whether someone lived or died in some of these heat wave events, especially um, some examples from Hurricane Ida, was whether or not someone checked on them and that the importance of communication at the community level. And, you know, these things are not any different than everything else that we do as emergency managers. So setting up a conference call with the different partners involved is something that they piloted last year in Portland in the Northwest during that event. And it's, we do this every week for every other hazard. So it's something that I will take back that we absolutely can be treating heat and any other event related to climate change in this more operational response way. And it might not be that we are the ones doing everything, but at the agency level, we have a partnership through the working group um, with such impressive subject matter experts and other agencies that there's virtually no one that we can't find access to if we need to. And, and that really is the role that we are very used to doing, that coordination and the planning and, um, you know, responding in a very similar way. So I'll take that back. But some of the personal stories that I have heard from the um, 
emergency managers out west and learning about the Chicago heat wave and really getting into uh, some of the stories from Ida. I mean, those will stick with me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast.